All right, I want you to imagine that you're hanging on the side of a cliff and you're holding on for dear life. Okay, so get that in your mind right now. You're, you're on the side, you're hanging on for dear life, and by God's grace, help has arrived, and they're about to throw you down a lifeline to pull you up. And when they do, they throw down three different ropes, and now you have a choice to make. Which rope am I going to grab onto for my life? Now, how many of you are going to grab a hold of this thin strand. Maybe some of you in the back can't even see it. You're like, I don't know, are you holding up anything, right? How many of you would grab this rope? It's not even a rope, really. It's a, a thin strand, okay? Now, how many of you would reach out for this medium-sized rope? Okay, it's a little bigger, right? You can see it now, but you're also thinking, I don't know. I don't know if that's gonna hold me up. Now, how many of you would reach out for this one? Like, this is a rope, like on the package, it said rope, <laughs> right? Now, if your life was on the line, clearly you would choose this rope. It's not even a decision. No one's going, well, let me think about the test way that it'll hold. No one's thinking about any of those things. On instinct, you grab for the thickest, strongest rope. That doesn't take wisdom. That just takes instinct. Now, that thin twine I showed you has an eight pound working load limit. So after eight pounds, this thing is going to pop, okay? Barely holds up a baby, right? The medium cord has a 98 pound working load limit. Still not good for me though, right? Few of us meet that working load limit. Now this thick rope here has a 520 pound working load limit. Now this thick rope is thick because it has many strands woven together. Now you can come look at this later. It's actually made out of the exact same material as that really thin strand right here. It's the exact same stuff. So this isn't some like polyfiber whatever of, of like, you know, of engineering uh, uh, ingenuity. It, it, it's the same substance. And yet it's woven, it's many strands woven together. In fact, the medium rope is simply this thin rope woven together. And this thick rope is that medium rope now woven together. And when you weave it together like that, the working load limit just jumps off the charts. It's exponential. It, it, the cumulative impound, uh, uh, impact of the weaving together of this thin strand makes it superior and strong. It's not that the thick rope is made of superior material. What makes it strong is the sum of its parts. And that's what we're trying to do this morning. That's what we've been trying to do this whole summer. As we walked through the book of Proverbs, we're trying to weave together a life of wisdom. One strand here, one strand together, that the cumulative impact of weaving all of these strands of wisdom together makes for a strong life. Not only to hold our life together, but also to pull us up out of difficult and dire situations. As we've been looking through the, the book of Proverbs, we've been trying to find these timeless wisdom principles that can be applied to everyday life. As you look at life, as you look at the week ahead of you, you realize life is complicated. It's often unpredictable. And we need help in building a life of wisdom and maturity. 
In today's passage that we heard read in Proverbs chapter 6, verses 1 to 19, the writer gives us timeless wisdom about three major areas of life that everybody is going to deal with. In fact, each of these areas are necessary in order to build a life of maturity. Without each of these, it's hard to build a life that's healthy and stable. And as we go through our three strands of wisdom today, I want you to think about them like those strands on a rope, every one of them being necessary in order to make the rope strong. And when they're woven together, when we are able to put these wisdom strands together, it will strengthen and support uh, the strongest loads of life. So today, Proverbs chapter six is going to teach us three things. First, we're going to learn about responsibility, specifically uh, as it comes to financial responsibility. How do we handle our money? Second, we're going to look at reliability. How do we discipline ourselves so that we become reliable people, people that, you can, that others can count on? And third, we're going to look at relationships, the importance of building strong and healthy communities. Each of these strands, responsibility, reliability, and relationships are going to be important for building a life of maturity that can stand up through the toughest of situations. Now, here's one thing you're going to notice. As the writer goes through and talks about each one of these these strands, he's going to use a negative example to teach a positive truth. So basically, what he's going to say is, don't be like this guy. Do the opposite of what this guy is doing. And often that's a very helpful way to go, okay, just don't do that. So let's start in chapter, uh, in Proverbs 6. If you're looking at one of the Bibles um, underneath the seats, it's on page 530 in the Bibles near you. We'll also have the words on the screen. So let's begin with responsibility. Proverbs 6, let's begin in verse 1. The writer says, my son, if you have put up security for your neighbor, have given your pledge for a stranger... If you are snared in the words of your mouth, caught in the words of your mouth, then do this, my son, and save yourself. For you have come into the hand of your neighbor. Go, hasten, and plead urgently with your neighbor. Give your eyes no sleep and your eyelids no slumber. Save yourself like a gazelle from the hand of the hunter, like a bird from the hand of the fowler. Who's talking about putting up security for someone. What what does it mean to put up security or to to give your pledge to someone? Well, it means to vouch for someone financially or legally. When you enter into these kinds of relationships, you are becoming legally responsible if another person fails to pay their debt or perform a duty. So it would be like co-signing a loan. So if, you, if you've ever, if someone said, hey, I, I can't get this loan, will you co-sign with me? You are now um, giving security. You're saying to the bank, listen, um, I, I got their back. If they default, if they can't pay, you can come looking for me. I'm, I'm pledging the security I have. You've looked at my accounts and, and my financial stability, and I'm saying I'll add my financial stability to theirs. So that's what you're doing when you're putting up security. It's, it's putting up your own collateral, your own property, your own finances for someone else. This would be underwriting a uh, business endeavor. It's getting, into another, it's getting into a situation where another person's default could actually bring you down. So what this proverb is saying is if you've done this, you're not in danger of becoming ensnared. The reality is you already are. If you've done that, you you, you already are caught in this trap. Did you see that in the verses I read? 
Verses one and two says, if you've put up security for someone else, you are snared and caught in a trap. Now a trap conceals its danger, right? Like it, the whole point of a trap is that you can't see it. If, you, if, you, if, it's, if it's big and, 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 and bright and like, you know, the, like orange, like, you know, oh, there's a trap there, right? There's no signs that say, here's a landmine right here. Don't step on me. The whole point of a trap is to catch prey unaware. Did you know that the Federal Trade Commission on its website gives a very sober warning about co-signing alone? This is from the FTC. Listen to this warning. You are being asked to guarantee this debt. Think carefully before you do. If the borrower does not pay the debt, you will have to. Be sure you can afford to pay if you have to and that you want to accept this responsibility. It goes on to say, you may have to pay up to the full amount of the debt if the borrower does not pay. You may also have to pay late fees, collection costs, which increase this amount. The creditor can collect this debt from you without first trying to collect from the borrower. The creditor can use the same collection methods against you that can be used against the borrower, such as suing you, garnishing your wages, etc. If this debt is ever in default, that fact may become a part of your credit record. The warning is simple. Don't become the debtor for a stranger's debt. So think about it. This person the reason they need a cosigner and collateral is because the bank has determined that this person or situation is risky, right? Banks make money by giving out loans, but they've assessed, listen, this is not a good thing. There, there, there's a lot of risk involved here. Now, that doesn't mean banks always get it right. Of course they don't. But it should at least give us cause for, uh, uh, for caution to pause and think critically about the situation. Now, some of you might be thinking, who would ever do that? I would never do that. Why would someone um, risk their own collateral for somebody else? Well, here's some situations that might come up. Sometimes people do it because they like to help people and they have a hard time saying no. These are people who have a hard time creating healthy boundaries in their life. And they would think, well, I know this person or I'm acquainted with them. And so they've asked me and I, I, I want to be a helpful person. So how, I'm a Christian. How could I not say No. You might have a genuine desire to help, but lack the discernment and judgment on when you should actually say no. Some people do it because they want to look good. They want to have, uh, it, it kind of shows this, this power and this prestige, like, oh, you need help. Well, I'm a benefactor. I, I, I can help you. And we like that. We like to be seen as the person who can enter into these situations uh, like Daddy Warbucks and, and, and be the benefactor. Sometimes people do this out of greed. They think, listen, I can give them the loan, I can charge some interest, I can make a buck, right? This is an easy way to gain um, a, a, a financial foothold. Now, regardless of, whether you, uh, of why you might find yourself in that situation, what does the text say you should do if you find yourself in this situation? Did you see it? He said, get out. Like, make haste right now. Swallow your pride, talk to them, and do whatever it takes to get out. He says, don't sleep until you do. We should feel the urgency of the warning. Take action now. Get out of this obligation before it's too late. 
If you were to look at this in the original Hebrew, it's painting a really graphic word picture. The, 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 the words used in verse three suggest the swallowing of pride, of, of, of getting down on the ground, even letting the other person trample over you, pestering the person until you get free from the obligation. What he's saying is pull no stops, do whatever it takes to get out. Do whatever it takes to get out of this kind of risk. Just hoping it will get better, just hoping things will work out is foolish. What this wisdom strand is saying is if you're in a credit arrangement that is holding you hostage, do whatever it takes to get free so that you can take back the responsibility of your life. It's also teaching subtly if you've done that to someone else, if you're a believer in Christ and you have done that, you have put someone else in that risky situation, you need to set them free from that obligation as well. Now, here's where we have to be. This is where wisdom comes in to play, right? This is not a blanket statement about ever, never co-signing alone, on a loan. That, that's not what wisdom is. Wisdom is saying, hey, learn this principle here and apply it artfully in life. The Bible is not anti-helping people, okay? Hear me. It is very pro-helping people. But when you give to someone, when you give to help someone, the way the Bible talks about helping is helping and not looking to get paid back. That's not saying you can't ever get paid back, but it is saying, I'm giving this to you as a gift. The Bible teaches to give generously and cheerfully In fact, the standard in the New Testament for giving looks at the model of Christ. Look with me at 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and verse 9. Paul writes this, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that by his poverty we might become rich. That is the ultimate example of generosity, and that's the example we are supposed to achieve. We often give less than we can to others because we want to maintain a certain lifestyle of comfort. And so when it comes to giving, we often only give out of the excess of our excess, right? We have like what we need to live and then we have like our discretionary income and then we have excess and then we go, if there's anything over here in this very last pile, that I freely give that away. And that's not what we're supposed to do. See, God is a generous God. He has abundantly given all that we need. And when you've experienced that kind of grace and that kind of generosity, what Paul is saying is when you realize just how rich Christ was and what he gave up to give you everything, it frees you up to have a heart of generosity and grace as well. You realize that all that you have is not your own. It's all a gift. And so you can be generous with it. We can take the gifts that we've received, knowing that everything we have, every dollar in your bank account is a gift and grace of God that frees us up to be generous to others. In fact, if you look at Proverbs chapter three, it teaches the wisdom of generous giving. Look at uh, verse 27 and 28. Do not withhold good from those to whom it is due when it is within your power to do it. Don't say to your neighbor, come and uh, go, go and come again tomorrow and I will give it when you have it with you now. Where we can, we should, be, uh, we, should, we should look to help people who are in over their heads. But this is where wisdom comes in. That doesn't mean we're called to enter into legal financial agreements where we're on the line for unwise risks. 
And you go, well, how, will I, how, how, how do I know? What's the formula? There isn't one. That's wisdom. Wisdom says, hold these two truths together. Don't enter into um, unnecessary financial risks and look to be a generous giving person. And you have to, wisdom is learning how to navigate both of those truths. So here's the wisdom strand. When it comes to responsibility with finances, your life should be marked by generosity and thoughtfulness, kindness and discernment. See, this proverb is saying, don't hastily enter into these uh, relationships. If someone calls you and asks for you to co-sign a loan, you probably shouldn't say yes right away. Go, hey, that, th- that, thank you for calling. Let me think about that. Let me discern. Let me see what we've got. Let me have a conversation with my spouse. Let me mull this over for a minute. You are not obligated to give an answer right away without being thoughtful and thinking about it. This proverb is a warning against indiscriminate and impulsive decisions. There may come a time in your life where it is the right thing to do to co-sign alone, but it may not always be. Wisdom requires us to slow down, assess the situation, and make a wise decision. Hear me, this is not a prohibition for all time in every situation against co-signing alone. If you send me an email and say, did you say we're never to co-sign alone? I'm just gonna send you a link to the sermon. I said it right there. This is not a prohibition for all time against co-signing alone, but it is a warning, a directive to be discerning about when you might enter into that situation and who you might enter into that situation and if it is wise to do so. Do you see the difference between those things? Okay. We are to learn responsibility with finances that's marked by generosity and thoughtfulness, kindness and discernment. Timeless wisdom that leads to maturity will understand this responsibility. Number two, let's also look at reliability. Look with me at verses six through 11. Some of my favorite verses in Proverbs. Go to the ant, O sluggard. Consider her ways and be wise. Without having any chief, officer, or ruler, she prepares her bread in summer and gathers her food and harvest. How long will you lie there, O sluggard? When will you arise from your sleep? A little slumber, a little sleep, a little folding of the hands to rest, and poverty will come upon you like a robber, want like an armed man. When you hear the word sluggard, what words come to mind? Go ahead, say them out loud. What do you got? Snail, what? Sloth, deadbeat, yeah, slow, lazy, gross. I heard one preacher describe a a sluggard like syrup that oozes slowly out of the bottle when it's cold, right? Man, it just takes forever. No work ethic, sleeping the day away, no drive and motivation to make something of themselves. Really, the sluggard in the Proverbs is the epitome of the wasted life, just a waste. Ray Ortland describes the sluggard this way. The sluggard is sluggish and slow, hesitant when he should be decisive, active, and forthright. His life motto is, hey, don't rush me. He's lazy, constantly making the soft choice, losing one opportunity after another, after another, after another, day by day, moment by moment, until he lies there helpless, and his wasted life. Now, as hard as it is to admit, admit, there's a little sluggard inside each one of us, isn't there? 
Now, this sluggard, it shows up throughout Proverbs. Let's look at three things quickly about the sluggard. The first thing that makes a sluggard a sluggard is they fail to start. They've got no initial drive. Look at me at verse 9 again. He says, how long will you lie there, O sluggard? When will you arise from your sleep? Here we see that the sluggard is unreliable and that he lacks the motivation to start. Again, this isn't saying like you can't sleep in on a, on a Saturday morning. That's not what this is saying. It's that perpetual unreliability. See, the hardest part of any project, of any endeavor, is getting started, isn't it? Stephen Pressfield in his book, The War of Art, which is a whole book about writing and, and what it takes to do that, he says this, most of us have two lives, the life we live and the unlived life within us. And between the two strands, the, between the two stands resistance. The life we live and the unlived, unlived life within us. And there's that resistance. It's, that, it's that, that, that hard part to get starting. It's that it's getting momentum going. The sluggard never gets past the resistance to start. He stays in the comfort and the indecision of the covers. It's like, well, in here it's safe and it's warm. He stays in the stupor of drowsiness, never getting out of bed, getting that first hit of caffeine so that little by little, moment by moment, opportunity slips away. Doesn't commit himself to anything. And so one small surrender after another, and he finds himself in poverty. So we see that the sluggard fails to start. Number two, the sluggard also fails to finish. Let's assume now the sluggard does the impossible, gets out of bed. Look what Proverbs 26, 15 says. The sluggard buries his hand in the dish and it wears him out to bring it back to his mouth. Think about that. That's kind of funny. It's okay to laugh. There's humor in the Bible. What it's saying is the sluggard is so sluggish. He can't even bring his own hand up to feed himself. He starts, he, he's done all the work to, to get the, the bowl of, of food together and he dips his hand in the dish, but then just gives up saying, oh, I put in so much work. I can't even get the ladle to my mouth. This proverb is painting a comical picture, which is really tragic, right? Of this unreliable person who just never finishes what they start. Think about that. Just so many open-ended projects, but there's never any completion to them. So to what end has he actually accomplished? Martin Luther King Jr. said these words. He said, if you can't fly, then run. If you can't run, then walk. If you can't walk, then crawl. But whatever you do, you have to keep moving forward. That's what the sluggard fails to do. It's okay if you get knocked down. It's okay if you've lost the energy, but you've got to keep going. On the rare occasion that the sluggard does start, he lacks the drive to finish it. Third thing about the sluggard is he often fails with excuses. They fail to start, they fail to finish, and when they're failing, they fail with excuses. Proverbs twenty-two thirteen, the sluggard says, there's a lion outside, I shall be killed in the streets. This is a classic example of the straw man excuse. There's no lions on Main Street, guys. What's out there? A job to live, I mean, a job to have, a mission to live, relationships, families. There's life out there. There's opportunity out there. But the sluggard makes all kinds of excuses, even willing to be delusional and say, can't go out there. 
There's a lion. The sluggard is unreliable because he makes excuses and never shows up. Ben Franklin once wrote, he that is good for making excuses is seldom good for anything else. The sluggard devotes what little energy he has to making excuses. It's fine to fail. Just don't make excuses. Own what's wrong. So what's the sluggard to do? Remember I said, there's a little sluggard inside all of us, if we're really honest. There's times when it's hard to get motivated. There's times when it's hard to finish through with something. And it's certainly, um, uh, there are times in our life when we just rely on excuses. And the writer tells us, go and take a lesson from the ant. Those little guys that we step on all the time. He doesn't direct them to the Harvard Business Review. He doesn't direct them to the latest leadership guru. He says, look at the small and simple ant. Look at how industrious they are. Look at how reliable they are. They just just get to work. They get it done. They're the opposite of the sluggard. There's an inner motivation and a drive to work hard, not only for themselves, but for the whole colony. They prepare their bread in summer, even when it's hot. They have a strong work ethic to endure and finish strong. And the writer says that when they've gathered all the crumbs, it will sustain them in the hard days of famine. The ants not out there making excuses. They're out there planning and preparing well. So here's the wisdom strand that we need to listen to today. Being reliable. Reliability means we prepare and plan. We work hard with motivation, with a determination to finish strong. If you want to become a reliable person, that's what it takes. It means preparation and planning, hard work and motivation, determination to finish strong. There's often times when I give my kids really hard tasks on purpose, and they'll inevitably say, Dad, this is really hard. And I'll say, I know. I planned it that way. Why? So that you can learn to do hard things, because life is hard, and it takes Preparation and building a work ethic so that you can get the job done. A life of maturity is not failing to start or finish or making excuses. A life of wisdom will prepare and plan. A life of maturity will work hard. And the life of wisdom will be motivated and determined to be faithful to the end. A mature person is reliable. Timeless wisdom that leads to maturity understands responsibility and reliability. Do you see this rope starting to get woven together? It's starting to get stronger. Now let's look at the last strand as it relates to our relationships. Look at me at verse 12. A worthless person, a wicked man, goes about with crooked speech and winks with his eyes and signals with his feet, points with his finger, with perverted heart, devises evil, continually sowing discord. Therefore, calamity will come upon him suddenly. In a moment, he'll be broken beyond healing. Now, I I told you earlier that uh, Solomon was going to teach us positive truths by negative examples, right? In the first one, we we saw the the, the warning about um, risky monetary decisions. The second one was about the sluggard and and the wasted life. If you noticed in this passage, the uh, intensity of the example uh, starts to increase, And it's reaching a climax here. The writer talks about the worthless and wicked person. 
Now, there's strong language here because relationships have power. He's saying, look, you know, it's one thing to be a slugger. It's one thing to enter into a, to a bad situation. But if you're going to be the person who tries to lead people astray, if you're going to have a wicked and perverse and uh, a heart that devises evil, this is the worst kind of foolishness. See, relationships can build a person up or they can tear a person down. The relational volatile person described here uses deceptive speech, evil motivations in order to disrupt community. Look at these final six verses of our, or the final few verses of our passage. Verse 16, there are six things that the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination to him. Now, let me tell you something. This is a little bit of Hebrew poetry. Anytime you see, you'll see this often in in wisdom literature, there's five things that God loves and one thing that he really, really loves or something like that. It's saying um, the the first set, the six things God hates, he really doesn't like them. And the seventh one is characteristic of all of them and it's the the, the most egregious to him. So these six things I'm gonna list are things that God really doesn't like. And the seventh one, Describes kind of all of them in a nutshell, and it, cap, and, and, and it, and it captures um, God's uh, 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 aggressive uh, reaction to it, okay? Six things the Lord hates. The seventh is an abomination to him. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, a hand that sheds innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that make haste to run to evil, a false witness who breathes out lies, and here's the seventh, and one who sows discord among brothers. Now, if you think about this list, everyone has lied in this room. Everybody has wronged someone. Everyone at some point, whether great or small, has devised a plan to hurt someone. Everyone has disrupted relational harmony. But that's not what this passage is talking about. It's not saying, have you ever done these things? Everyone sins. What this passage is talking about is the one who does so aggressively and egregiously, the one who gets pleasure out of it, the one whose life is marked by these things. Not that you've ever told a lie, but that you have a lying tongue. Most often, people can't trust you because you lie. This would be someone who, who's, who, who, is, who has um, devised plans to shed innocent blood, haughty eyes, these, these prideful eyes whose life is marked by it. Feet that make haste to run to evil. Not, not that you've never run to evil, but that, that, that's, you get up in the day and you go, how can we get to evil? That's what he's talking about. The one whose life is marked by evil motivations and the one who seeks to do wrong. This would be a person who works to undo all that God stands for. See, God is a God of truth. He's a God of goodness. He's a God of beauty. And this person is trying to unravel those things. This is a worthless person who confuses God's truth, opposes God's goodness, and brings harmony, disharmony to God's beauty. That final one, the one that kind of sums it all together, is saying the one who sows discord among brothers. Because what does it take to sow discord? Lying haughty eyes, the one who's devising evil plans, shedding innocent blood, right? They're, they're, they're breaking the harmony and relational connectivity among a community. Here's what you, you find out as you read throughout the Bible. God takes relational unity, this idea of community, he takes it very seriously. 
because we are relational beings created by a relational God. We were meant to live in peace and harmony and community. And God takes it very seriously when people work to, 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 uh, to undo what God is doing, to break apart good relationships. See, God cares about how we treat each other. When we break relational bonds, it destroys a society. When you read the headlines, you know, like we, we hear of, of an, another tragic shooting over the weekend, right? Like, I always have to look early Sunday morning just to make sure I didn't miss another one, right? That didn't happen on an off chance. I guarantee you, if we dig in, there's been lots of relational brokenness in that person's life. And when that goes on a rampage, people die. When we can't get together as a society, when there are broken relational bonds, give it enough time, it will destroy a society. See, without loving and trusting communities, we can't even survive, let alone thrive. No man is created on our island. We need each other in order to thrive. When we lose the ability to live in community, we live dysfunctional lives. Listen to how Fred Rogers, Mr. Rogers, says it in his book, The World According to Mr. Rogers. It's beautiful. Look what he says. He's kind of commenting on uh, 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 persons with disabilities. And he says, part of the problem with the word disabilities is that it immediately suggests an inability to see or hear or walk or do other things that many of us take for granted. But what of people who can't feel or talk about their feelings or manage their feelings in constructive ways? What of people who aren't able to form close and strong relationships and people who can't find fulfillment in their lives and those who have lost hope, who live in disappointment and bitterness and find in life no joy and no love. This, it seems to me, are the real disabilities. Saying if you have lost the ability to connect relationally with people, if you can't find a single shred of joy and life and love in this world, then that's the ultimate dysfunction. That's the ultimate disability. That's the thing that is destroying us. Mr. Rogers, who was, by the way, an ordained Presbyterian minister, he's riffing off the wisdom of this proverb. What he's saying is we need to grow in our emotional intelligence and awareness. We need to grow in um, how we relate to one another. We need to understand how our actions affect the communities in which we live. The things that we do, the way that we relate to another have an impact on our homes, our schools, our towns, our church, and our world. There's implications about how we treat one another. How while you might not be marked characteristically by any of these things, wisdom does call us to look in the mirror and ask, where am I prone towards this wicked path? Right? Maybe, maybe some of you, you're going, listen, I don't, those, those, those six things that the Lord hates, that seventh one, that, that wouldn't mark or characterize my life. But true wisdom says, even if it doesn't characterize me, where, where am I prone towards those things? Or where, where might I need to grow in those things? So is it the haughty eyes of pride, this tendency to look down on others? Is it the lying tongue of deception? Is your first impulse to, to, to curb the truth, to, to say it in certain ways so that you look better or to, uh, to get you out of a, of a situation at work? Is your first reaction, instead of just owning it, is it to lie? 
Is it the hand that's motivated by anger? When things aren't going your way, when control is, is out of your reach, are you quick to anger? Is it the heart that plots and plans harm? Is it feet that too quickly run to sin? Is it the lies of gossip and slander? Where we say things about others in order to make us look better and to make them look less than? Is it a disruptive soul that just loves misery? That just finds the sourness in anything and everything? See, none of these questions are easy to be honest about. But friends, wisdom tells us if we aren't honest about our failures, then we can't begin the path towards healing and freedom. In their book, The Relational Soul, Plass and Cofield write this, we must get to both the consciousness and unconscious realities of our story. We must do so because whatever we do not own eventually will own us. What is he saying? We need to learn about how to bring to the surface the reality of our struggles. If we're honest about where we struggle, then we can begin to find healing and freedom. But if we keep those things buried, willfully ignoring where we struggle and sin, then we can never deal with them honestly. This negative example uh, of relationships gone wrong, it points us to how relationships should be. So here's the wisdom strand when it comes to relationships. Relationships should be marked by love and trust, honesty and vulnerability. And when our relationships are marked by humility and honesty, love and trust, not only will you flourish, but all of the relationships around you will begin to thrive and flourish as well. Timeless wisdom that leads to this life of maturity, this strengthening rope with the strands of wisdom pulled together is one that's responsible, reliable, and relational. Now, if you're like me, as, you, as we've been walking through these three things, you, you, you might be keeping score on how you're doing, right? Saying, okay, on there, I've, I've, I've missed it there, and over here, I, I could do better. That's good. We should be thinking thoughtfully about where we need to grow and improve. We need to be self-aware and rightly assess how we're doing and what areas that we need to change in order to grow. Now, I know that sometimes seeing all of our failures, having them kind of all put in front of us at one moment can feel debilitating. And we start to think, well, I can't do it. I'll, I'll never measure up. And, and there's the temptation to just give up and say it's too much. Now, at the same time, if you're looking at that list and you're going, man, I think I'm doing pretty good. Even our successes can be debilitating because you start to think, well, I gotta keep it going. I, I can't ever fail or I'm gonna go down the wrong path. And you start to think that everything now begins to depend on you. You can begin to think that you can never make a mistake and the stress of having to perform and never fail can begin to feel like a weight that you can't bear. So on one hand, some of us today might feel that this, 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 uh, this uh, temptation to go down this path of despair, thinking I can never measure up. And some of you may be feeling the pressure to go, uh, I have to keep on succeeding. But here's where the good news of the gospel brings freedom. If you have Christ, the Bible says you have everything, even when you fail to get it right. And if you have Christ, then the Bible says the pressure is off to maintain some impossible standard of perfection. 
You can have a life that's marked by responsibility, reliability, and relationships, but if it lacks Christ, hear me, it lacks everything. You may be one of those people who lives out in the world who kind of has their life figured out. Like we're not the only people who can form strong relationships, who can make financially wise decisions and who can be hard workers. But if that person lacks Christ, they lack everything. And if you're like me and you've stumbled along the way and there's times and periods of your life where you've not been marked by the wisdom of responsibility, reliability and strong relational bonds, you might be thinking, where's hope for me? The hope is even in your struggle, if you have Christ, then you have everything. You have everything. And that's not because, uh, and that's because the ultimate strength of our life, our wisdom is not in our performance, but in our Savior. Look what Paul says in Ephesians chapter two, verse eight and 10. He says, for the, by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is a gift of God not a result of work so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. What he's saying is this, our performance in wisdom, how well you do on these things does not earn your salvation. If you get all these wisdom strands right, that does not save you. Our failure to live a life of wisdom doesn't prohibit your salvation either. Our salvation is a gift. It's not a result of works. It's not a result of performance. That's why Paul says our only boast is in Christ. Listen, I know we have all sinned. I don't need to know your story to know that you've sinned. We have all failed to live a life of perfect wisdom. And so to compensate, some people try and they try their whole life to do a bunch of good works to kind of outweigh the balance scale. But that's not how it works. You cannot do enough good works to balance out the scales. Some know it's too much. I can't do it. I can't live that life, Clint, that you're talking about. And so they've just given up trying. And the gospel truth this morning is both endless striving endless striving and wallowing despair do nothing to solve our problem. Our only hope is to receive the gift of Christ. See, Jesus has an abundance of grace and he gives it freely to all who would recognize their need and who ask for mercy, grace, and forgiveness so that when you have Christ, you're strong enough to build a life of wisdom. That's what Paul said. When you have Christ, now we've been created in Christ to do this life of good works. We're not working now uh, to, 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 to earn a life of wisdom. We've been given a life of wisdom. So now you can work hard and become a reliable person because you're finally free from the weight of guilt and shame that so often holds us back. Now we can live our lives, not motivated by trying to prove ourselves to somebody, but just, uh, or, or, or trying to earn God's love. But because we have God's love, we can freely live our lives. We can live because we're loved and accepted by God. Your life will change when the motivation stops being fear to prove yourself and love driven by God. You can face your failures and not fear being rejected because you've already been accepted by God. You can be honest where where you've come up short. 
And when that happens, it changes your life from duty to delight. That's what grace does to us. It transforms this duty of living out these responsibilities and it makes it a delight to live and thrive according to God's design. And we can grow and we can change and we can cultivate healthy relationships in our life where we can be honest about our limitations as well as creating strong relational bonds that leads to healthy community. We can seek the good of others uh, as the love of Christ changes us from the inside out. And when we do that, when we live that way, we will build communities that are really transformational. Friends, Jesus is the only true wisdom that you can build your life upon. Let's pray.